So, Lord, we thank you that your Spirit is here. Your Spirit is the Holy Ghost. So this house is haunted, Lord God. And I thank you for that. Haunted with the Holy Ghost, with your Spirit. And so now, Lord God, through the power of your Spirit, would you help us in, in this room and wherever we may be at this moment to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be familiar with Elitch's amusement park right down here off of I-25, right? But only some of you are familiar with the original Elitch's amusement park at 38th and Tennyson. If, can I see a show of hands? Amen. Hallelujah. It had a uh, haunted house, a completely mechanized haunted house. You uh, traveled through in a cart on some rails, and uh, it was spooky. Strangely, however, they didn't have any monsters, just darkness and these weird swirling things that kind of made you feel disoriented, and mannequins. And then this waterfall that would sometimes turn off uh, right before you, you got to it. No monsters, but, but there were mannequins, and that's what was creepy. I mean, just regular people like construction workers or policemen. At one point, this policeman would pop out and blow his whistle, and that always kind of gave me the willies because you, you wondered, is it, is it dead or is it, is it alive? I loved the haunted house, but as I got older, the haunted house got less and less interested and more and more boring, and I, I had gained the knowledge of mechanical automation. In other words, I knew that the waterfall would shut off because there was like a tripwire along the track, a lever, and your cart would trip it and the waterfall would, would shut off. I knew that the policeman wasn't real, not alive, just a, a machine. I knew the house wasn't haunted, just mechanized. No, I liked that knowledge because it gave me a sense of control, but the fun died, and the ride got boring until one particular evening in high school. My friend Pat turned to me, and he said, let's get out. Not having a mind of my own and always looking for ways to impress girls, I said, okay. We found the trip lever for the waterfall and tried to get people wet. I don't know if we succeeded, but we did succeed in making the ride more spooky, and that was the best part. Just past the mechanical policeman, we'd stand on the side of the track perfectly still, you know, like one of the mannequins. We would, we would hide in plain sight. When little children would see us, they'd they didn't seem to be any more spooked than they already were because, you know, for children, all reality is enchanted. Everything's alive. Everything is more than what they know. And so we were just two more semi-real dummies uh, in an already enchanted reality. But for the adults, it, it was different. They'd glance at me, and, and then they'd look again, and and, and then they'd, they'd stare, and I could read their minds. They were thinking, oh, look, they, they got a, a, a new dummy. And, and it's so real. Oh, my God, is that, a, is that a real dummy? Oh, my God, it's alive! 
and then we'd move. Just touch them, and they'd go nuts, just freak out. It was, it was awesome. After a few minutes, I said, Pat, I, I think they know that we're in here. Now, that wasn't prophecy on my part. It just occurred to me that by now there were probably some angry, wet people at the end of the ride screaming, someone's loose in the haunted house, which is kind of ironic because unless someone is loose in the haunted house, it's not really haunted, right? Well, it just occurred to me, some angry, wet folks were probably at the end of the, of the ride. We had gone off the rails, and we didn't know how to get back on the rails. We had no exit strategy. Just then, another cart came down the track. They could see three, but this one only had two, a mother and her little daughter. The daughter was already spooked, and the, and the mother, I could tell, was bored until she looked at me. And then she looked again at me, and then I jumped in right next to her. I didn't know what to say, so I said, excuse me, but my cart broke down. Uh, do you mind if I uh, take a ride out with you? But I don't think she heard me, because she was screaming at the top of her lungs, and, and she wouldn't stop. I rode out with her as so the lights came on, and the security guards came in and grabbed my friend Pat, but they didn't suspect me, even though the lady was screaming, because, you know, that's what you do at a haunted house. You scream, right? I remember feeling kind of bad for her. I felt bad, but at least the ride wasn't boring. <laughs> so how do you prefer the ride? Mechanized or haunted? Dead or alive? Predictable, under control, and safe or fun? Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul. Quick question, how can your soul bless the Lord? Your nephesh, your psyche, the, that you know, spirit in human clay. How can your soul bless the Lord? Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys, or as the King James puts it, the wild asses quench their thirst. That's good news for all you wild asses. Verse 12, beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth fruit from the earth. And wine, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted 
in them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, whom Isaiah calls the twisting serpent. Leviathan, which you formed to play in it, in the sea. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the Adamah, the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the heavens, on the earth, and, and it trembles, who touches the mountains, and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Now, that may have inspired several thoughts in you and maybe raised some questions. Maybe one of those questions is, is that true? Does God clothe himself with splendor and majesty, like in verse 2? Does he clothe himself? Does God wear light like a cloak, stretching out the heavens like a tent? Does God make the clouds his chariot? Does God cause grass to grow? Or is that nitrogen and phosphorus and photosynthesis? Verse 5, does the earth not move? According to 19th century physics, it moves all the time. According to 20th and 21st century physics, well, it depends on your perspective. Verse 15, did God make wine to gladden the hearts of men? <laughs> There's a memory verse for you, okay, if you're looking for a memory verse. Do sea monsters and lions really look to God for food? And what about rabbits that become food for lions? And are they all terrified when God hides his face? Verse 29. Is that why the mountains smoke? Because God touches them? Verse 32. I have an undergraduate degree in geology from the University of Colorado. My son does too, and now he's working on his PhD in geology, married to my geologist uh, daughter-in-law, Natalie, if you asked us why mountain smoke, we'd tell you about plate tectonics and hot spots and the mantle. We'd tell you about mechanisms. We'd tell you about science. Science, you know, is actually pretty simple. It's just the study of cause and effect in controlled environments. 
in pop culture, we kind of have this idea that ancient people had no clue about science. That they had no clue that one thing might cause another thing. And so they had no clue that if you stepped on a cliff, the result might be predictable. They had no clue about gravity. Check it out. You won't even find the word gravity in your Bible. That's what, that's what we modern people say. Modern people are pretty arrogant and stupid. If you ask a geologist why mountains smoked, well, we might tell you about plate tectonics. And if we asked you, if you asked us why plates moved, well, we'd tell you um, about convection and the depths of the, of the earth. And if you asked us what caused the earth, we'd find ourselves back at the Big Bang, and then we'd be forced to describe something like, a, something like an uncaused cause or an unreasonable reason. An uncreated creator. You know, if you took the sum total of all contingent reality, that means if you think about everything that has a cause, it raises an obvious question. What could cause everything that is caused? except for something like an uncaused cause, an uncreated creator, a reason for which there is no other reason, an unreasonable reason. And now once you start thinking about unreasonable reasons, you'll realize that you're surrounded by unreasonable reasons all the time. For instance, reason. What's the reason for reason? Or logic. How can you logically prove that logic is logical? Or truth, how do you know truth is true? Or beauty, what is that? How do you know beauty is beautiful? And In the Bible, beauty and goodness are usually often the same word. How do you know that goodness is, is good? Or love, or life, or light? You know, scientists are utterly baffled by, by light, or consciousness. I think the Bible calls that spirit or existence. I, I think the Bible might call that I am that I am. Scripture claims that Jesus is the truth, the life, logos, logic, reason, that is the wisdom of God. God, who is isness, who is beingness, who is amnes, God, God who is love and who alone is good, who alone is beauty. So, does beauty ride on the clouds like a chariot? Do the lions look to the life to provide their food? Are they terrified when light and life hides his face and takes back the ruach, the, the spirit that animates their dust? Do you ever perceive a beauty and order or or a logos, a logic in creation. Even if it may have included billions of years of cause and effect, even if you put labels on the mechanisms like gravity or diffraction. I heard about a group that was enjoying the beautiful music at a Chinese restaurant. When the soloist began to play a vaguely familiar tune, 
They beckoned the splendidly clad waiter over to their table and asked him to find out what the musician was playing. The waiter waddled uh, across the floor, then returned with a look of triumph on his face and declared in a loud whisper, Violin! He's playing the violin! A stupid scientist, not a, a smart one, a stupid one will look at a brilliant sunset and declare in a loud whisper, that's diffraction of electromagnetic waves on a cumulonimbus cloud. A stupid theologian will look at Psalm 104 and declare in a loud whisper, that's primitive man, <laughs> expressing wonder over things that he does not understand. But of course, we now do understand. That's just Hebrew poetry. What I'm saying is that Psalm 104 could be true. But this is the weird part. You don't have to believe that it's true. It's like God clothes himself with clouds, volcanoes, and all creation. In other words, he hides in plain sight and lets us decide whether the ride is mechanical or haunted with him. Why is that? You ever thought about that? Why is that? Verse 1, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Yaria, uh, like, like a curtain. Why does God wear clothes? You know, um, according to Scripture, what we just read, God clothes himself with this. The heavens. Many have noticed that Psalm 104 mirrors the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. The Lord God clothes himself with creation. He's underneath it, all around it. He's even, well, he's with, within it. He's the beauty in every sunset. He's the logic in every question. He's the truth in every statement that is, in fact, a statement like Scripture says. In him we live and move and have our being. He is being. And yet, He's clothed, hiding in plain sight. You know, the fashion industry is all about hiding in plain sight. Have you ever thought about that? You ever seen a fashion magazine? It's all about covering great beauty and a little more beauty that makes you long for the greater beauty. I mean, it's really all quite confusing for men, but very effective. It makes them curious about that which is hiding in plain sight. In kindergarten, I looked under Lucy Nolan's skirt. There it is. And I got in a lot of trouble. I don't think it was really sexual, but I was curious about what was going on under there. Well, God stretches out the heavens like a skirt, a yuria, yuria, normally translated curtain and, and sometimes tent. It's how you would build a, a tent. I, I counted before Psalm 104, yuria appears 46 times in Scripture, and every time it refers to the tabernacle, which, you know, became the, the temple. Entering the tabernacle could get you in a lot of trouble, could get you killed. 
it was a bit like looking under God's skirt. And if you did, what would you see? God clothes himself with creation. Why does God wear clothes? Why does he ride clouds and speak to the stars and whisper on the wind? I mean, why doesn't he just materialize in your room and say, admit it, buster, I exist or fry forever now? Why didn't he do that? Why does he wear clothes? What's he trying to hide? Is it bad? Or is it good? Several years ago, I was lying on a beach with Susan in the French Caribbean. I rolled over, looked down the beach, and I saw a beautiful young woman practicing ballet on the beach without a stitch of clothing. I think God said something to me at that point. Peter, I made that. I made her. That's very good. But right now, the way you look at her can be very bad. (laughs) Why don't you say, good job, God, and look at the ocean for a while? (laughs) The truth is, I was lying next to my stunning bride, but there's something in me that wants to take beauty and consume beauty rather than worship God for beauty or as beauty. So, so maybe I can't handle that much unmitigated beauty. I'm working on loving one great beauty. I, I, maybe I'm just not ready for all. Maybe God clothes himself for now because we need protection from his beauty. His glory. You know, when Jesus transfigured on the mountain and when he appeared uh, in the Revelation, even his friends dropped like flies in light of his glory. That's why the Israelites couldn't bear the tabernacle in their midst. People were actually killed by the revelation of glory. They looked under the skirt and... It's like we preached last week. The revelation of God's grace, which is Himself, destroys the human psyche and human flesh cannot bear the glory. So it's His mercy to protect us from His unmitigated mercy for a time. Maybe that's why God clothes Himself. To protect us from Himself. Or maybe it's to protect Himself from us which is to protect us from ourselves. You see, there's something in us that's jealous of his beauty, intimidated by his beauty, something that wants to take his beauty like fruit from a tree rather than worship his beauty like a soldier kneeling at the foot of of a cross. I asked, what would we see if we looked under God's skirt, so to speak? What will we see if we look behind the veil in the tabernacle? What will we see on the other side of the Big Bang? What will we see if we look behind the veil in the temple of the human soul? Well, we just spent all this time, like what, a year and a half, preaching through the Revelation, and so now we know. We'd see a slaughtered lamb standing on a throne, bleeding for all creation. We'd see Jesus. This is the book of Hebrews. He is the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, or as the word of his power. He's the power, the beauty, the reason, the logic, the way, the truth, the life, and the love of God that is God. And we stripped him of his clothes and crucified him naked. That he led us, that he gave what we took, that he forgave his life is the substance and radiance of the glory of God. God is unquenchable fire! And a naked man hanging on a tree in a garden. I don't know quite how to put all of that together except to say that the only people that were allowed to see that he was both, the only people that experienced Easter, the only people filled with the fire and the glory that is God were also people that worshipped at the foot of that tree. I mean, everyone could see that the tomb was empty, right? But those that saw him resurrected and didn't immediately go up in flames or, or die were those who knew that before we took his life, he had given his life, saying, this is my body broken for you. This is the covenant in my blood. See, it was a marriage covenant. That's an agreement between two people to offer themselves one to another as a living sacrifice. If I look under the skirt of my marriage partner, we call it making love. And that's where life comes from. But if I look under the skirt of someone that hasn't freely offered themselves to me, it's not making love and making life, it's rape. It's taking life, and it results in death. Death! And that reminds me of another question. So number one, why does God clothe himself? And then number two, why does he remove his breath? Did you ask that one during this? I mean, what about, what about death? Listen to this, verse 27. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good. Literally in the Hebrew, it's just good or the good. When you hide your face, your presence, it can also be translated presence, because God's always presence, but sometimes he hides his presence. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their ruach, their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your ruach, your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the Adama. That's Hebrew for ground. And all of that is rather remarkable if you think about it. I think the psalmist is saying that everything good, everything beautiful, everything right, everything true is the manifestation or the incarnation of God's breath. And everything evil is like the manifestation of its absence. So we're surrounded, aren't we, by creation and chaos, by good and evil, by death and and, and life, or life and death. And we experience creation and chaos. We experience good and evil and, and life and death. We're created with the breath of God, but God takes away the breath and we die. But then God sends his breath, his spirit, and we are renewed, born again, and resurrected. Adamah becomes Adam, even the eschatos Adam, the body of Christ. 
You know, all four Gospels record that on the tree in the garden, Jesus surrendered the breath, the ruach. God didn't take it. Jesus gave it. As far as I know, that's the first instance of an Adam surrendering his breath. Up until then, every Adam held his breath in fear. <laughs> but Jesus is faith. Jesus surrendered the breath, and God breathed it back, and Jesus rose from the dead, and it's his faith that saves us and creates us. So why does God clothe himself? Maybe because he is so good. And why does he remove his breath? Maybe to show us that the good is the life and the life is given, even forgiven to each of us. When, when we take it, when we take it uninvited, we rape the good, murder the life, and everything dies. When we receive the life as a gift, we receive our groom, give birth to his life, and discover that everything lives with the goodness that is God. To put it in theological terms, when we take knowledge of the good, that is the law, in an attempt to justify ourselves, we kill the good and everything dies. But when we receive the good as the gift that it is, which is grace, well then everything lives. What's behind the curtain? I think it looks something, not exactly, but something like, like this. This is a medieval painting by Giovanni something in 1420. It's a painting of the Lamb on the throne, Jesus on the cross, the good and life on the tree in the middle of the garden. We modern people, I think, have missed it because we've stopped believing that God is telling the story and that Scripture is actually enchanted or haunted with His Spirit. Here at the sanctuary, we preached on this in, in Genesis, saw it in Genesis, saw it in the Gospel, saw it in the Revelation, and even most recently, in the, well, before that in the book of Ecclesiastes, we saw that there is this remarkable link between the two trees in one spot in the middle of the garden in Genesis and the tree on which Jesus was crucified in the garden on Mount Calvary, and the tree of life in the middle of the eternal garden city, the New Jerusalem. You see, God doesn't change. And Jesus doesn't change. And the judgment, the decision of God does not change. But how we relate to this tree does change. And the tree changes us. Jesus is the good in flesh, and his absence is evil, and Jesus is the life. If you're over the age of two or three, I bet you've taken knowledge of the good from this tree in order to justify yourself, and everything began to die. If you've ever confessed your sin and believed God's mercy, you've been to this tree and seen that the good you took is the life God gives, and you began to worship. And now you, you may think, okay, Peter, God, I've heard you talk this way, but, but I just, I don't get it. I come to church to get some knowledge so I can make my life work. I come to church to understand the mechanics of faith so I can work the, work the system and save my tail. I come to church and you tell me freaky weird stories about a tree. I've never seen two trees in the middle of the Garden of Eden. 
I've never seen God in flesh crucified on a tree in a garden. I've never seen the tree of life and the new Jerusalem coming down. I've never seen it. Well, I'm saying, yes, you have. It's hiding in plain sight. It's there at the beginning of your time. It's there at the end of your time. It's there in the midst of your time. And every time you encounter the good and consider life, understand the universe is haunted with the Spirit of your Father. When my two children were very young, my two youngest when they were very young, Coleman and Becky, I remember sometimes the older kids would play, but the, the young ones really liked this. They had this favorite game that they would ask me to play every night when I came home from work. They called it Monster. They would ask me to go hide in the basement, and then they'd come looking for me. And so I'd put like a lampshade on my head, you know, or I'd squeeze behind the boxes by, by the furnace. And they'd come walking through the basement wondering, is it an old lamp or a monster or daddy? Sometimes I'd move or cough just to give myself away. And I always loved to hear them calling, daddy, daddy, daddy. And then I'd, and then I'd jump out, grab them, throw them in the air, and then I'd blow bumbles on their tummy as they'd just squeal with joy. The basement was haunted. Or, or maybe a better word to use is it was enchanted. It was haunted with me. And you see, that's the way they liked it. Not mechanized, but enchanted. Not dead, but alive. That's the way they wanted it and the way they wanted me. I don't think God is very interested in answering the question, does God exist? I don't think he's very interested in answering that question until you answer the question, do I want God to exist? And so he clothes himself in stars and clouds and rainbows and light. He puts a lampshade on his head and he calls to you from behind the boxes. He romances you with high fashion. Wouldn't you like to know what's on the other side of the Big Bang? Wouldn't you like to know what's on the other side of the curtain in the depths of your own soul? Oh, you think the sunset is beautiful. Would you like to meet beauty? You're grateful for truth. Now, would you like to meet the truth? I'm so glad you enjoy life. Now would you like to meet me? He lets you feel his breath. And then he withholds his breath. That you would long for his breath. That you would long for him. Very soon you will see that it was him in the sunset. He was the truth in every word. He was the rhythm in every song and the love in your own soul. Very soon he'll jump from behind the boxes in your basement. And when he does, if you have not learned to trust him, if you thought he was just a principle, a good idea, or a mechanism for making your life work, if you, if you thought he was dead, well, you will be utterly undone as you realize that everything is alive 
with him. And so at that point, you might try to kill him. Tried once before. You might burst into flames. You might run and hide from him deeper and deeper in the darkness. But if you've learned to trust him, if you've longed for him and worshipped him, if you've looked for him and called to him, even in the basement of your own soul, well, then you will delight in him. You will delight in Him as He delights in you and you squeal with endless and unquenchable delight. Bless the Lord, O my soul. How can your soul bless the Lord? Maybe you could enjoy Him. That's how my children bless me. Bless me more than anyone else in this world except Susan. They enjoyed me. They enjoyed me enjoying them. <laughs> I gave my life to my kids. I breathed my life into them and they breathed it back to me as prey. They'd, they'd laugh and they'd giggle and they'd say, I love you, Daddy! Do it again! 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 I, that was heaven. So what I'm saying is the house is haunted. The universe is enchanted, and everywhere you look, you will see the tree. When you do, when you hear the truth, will you think, how can I use this? How can I twist this for my own advantage? Or will you honor it and serve it? Will you serve Him? When you see the life, will you just try to kill it and consume it, conquer it, take it, or, or, and, 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 and use it? Or, or will you worship God and say, thank you for giving yourself to me? When you encounter beauty in another, will you try to conquer it, take it, and use it? Or will you worship God in the temple that is your neighbor? When you hear the Word of God, do you prefer to hear principles and laws that you can apply to your life? Or, or do you prefer to hear the love that is your Lord who applies you to His life? You see, the day we crucified the good on a tree was a revelation of what we fallen people do all the time. And the day that the life was given to us on a tree was a revelation of what our Lord is doing for us and to us and with us all the time. <laughs> so, how do you prefer the ride? Mechanized or enchanted? Dead or alive? Crucified or risen from the dead? Because the house is haunted. The universe is enchanted, and our Father is hiding in plain sight. <laughs> How do you prefer the ride? I hope you seek Him with all your heart and in every direction and all the time. I hope you learn to love him here and now, for soon he'll jump from behind the boxes, the universe will spring to life, and he would like you to enjoy him enjoying you forevermore. A communion of joy. And so on the night that the life and the good in flesh was betrayed, the way, the truth, the life, the light, the beauty took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. 
take and eat. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. We'll celebrate communion now. And I'm just reminding you to celebrate it all the time and everywhere. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. So if you came to the table, I believe that the Lord just touched the coal to your lips like he did for Isaiah. And he says, whom shall I send? Don't lie to him. But if you'd like to go, if you'd like to go tell people what's behind the curtain, that God is good and God is love and their sins have been forgiven, then answer God's question now in the silence of your soul. Say, send me. I would like to go for you. Amen. That was an interesting progression of songs that Will's picked. I didn't, I didn't pick them. Uh, started with the song, um, There's Nothing Like Your Love. Did you notice that? And God is love. And then it turned into, Your Love Is Like Radiant Diamonds. Don't know if you thought, hey, that's a contradiction. But it's not. Because what's radiant about a diamond? Wouldn't it be the love in it when you give it to somebody? Or maybe the logic that holds that cubic lattice structure together. I'm a geolog I love geology. But God is the good in everything. And then we sang the song about Isaiah. And remember, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the tabernacle. It fills the temple. God touches the coal to his lips, and then he sees that the whole earth is God's temple. And now this is the crazy part. This is like what? I'm trying to remember like 400 years before Christ. In other words, the universe is haunted. It's enchanted with the Spirit of your Father. So we just celebrated communion, and I'm reminding you to celebrate it all the time and everywhere. So when you look at the stars in the heavens, don't explain a away God with science. <laughs> Worship God with science. See, that quasar is 13 billion light years away and you got it in your pocket, Dad? Wow. When you drink a glass of wine, don't worship the wine, but worship the life of God revealed in the wine. In other words, turn it into communion wine. That way you won't be enslaved to the wine, but you'll worship God and commune with God through wine. That's, we just had communion. And when you experience his absence, when the manifestation of light, life, love, and truth is withdrawn, when he takes away his breath, thank God for his breath. And that you will experience it in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. You know, when my children would look for me in the basement, they were thrilled even by my apparent absence, knowing that in the twinkling of an eye, my absence 
will become the manifestation of my presence. And when you expire for the last time, know that you are being inspired for the first time. God is breathing you into his eternal reality. You are the breath of God. Allow your universe to be enchanted by God because it is. Amen.